Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media present Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera, and this is Episode 9. Today, we'll be talking about space boats. In the future, where vast distances are linked together by the technology of Star Jump, what value can slower-than-light vessels possibly have? Quite a bit, actually. With freight and passenger hauling being the life's blood of the economy of this universe, and Star Jump having some hard limitations, there's a gap between a star system's fringes and any settlements further in. This is one place where spaceboats shine, though it's not the only one, and certainly not just in the civilian sector. Every government, corporate entity, and private organization with assets in vacuum actively use spaceboats, some of them quite extensively. And it's not overstating things to say that civilization itself in this future is dependent upon them. We'll take a close look at this fascinating and widely varied vessel type in detail right after the update. Okay, I've gotten back into the swing of things regarding all he surveys, or maybe the sway of things. Okay, I'm moving my hips from side to side and humming quietly. But there has been some progress, and because of that, I'm feeling better about the current state of this tale. It's progressing, albeit more slowly than I'd been anticipating, but I'm into the back end of the first draft now, and that's a good feeling, let me tell you. Current status. I'm on Chapter 25 of Draft 1 at approximately 145,000 words. But here's some other news. I started working on a Star Drifter role-playing game. It's very early days. The game is in its proto-stage at best. I intend to keep a general record of my progress, so to that end, I've started doing a bit of an audio blog, which I'll be including here from this point on. What follows, then, are some on-the-go thoughts and observations about the construction of the Star Drifter role-playing game. Ignore the sound quality. I do. Okay, this is a new segment. And uh, in form, it's going to be just like my uh, audio diary, if you listen to that. Uh, I don't know if you do. But if, if you don't, that is an awful lot like this. That is, I'll be recording with uh, low-quality equipment in order to uh, record on the go, and it's all extemporaneous. This segment is specifically about the process of creating the Star Drifter RPG uh, role-playing game. Uh, that's a thing that I've wanted to do for a while, and, you know, in the back of my mind, but I wasn't into role-playing games anymore. So I thought, well, okay, whatever, maybe someday, or maybe someone else will be inspired. Well, a lot of people are interested, but not a lot of people were inspired to take up the mantle. Plus, in reality, I'm the only one who understands the system, or I should say understands the, the universe of Star Drifter 
well enough to pull something like this off. Started getting back into gaming uh, with a friend of mine named Klaatu. And the two of us have put together MixedSignals.ml, which is a blog and overall gaming endeavor. And you can go check that out. I do recommend it if you're into gaming or fantasy or any of that stuff. Assuming a Star Drifter role-playing game does come into creation, then it will be released through the auspices of Mixed Signals. And that's because that's exactly what it's for, gaming and such. So, I think that it's a good idea to kind of chronicle the process of the creating this game, of, of putting it together, playtesting it, tweaking it, changing it, scrapping it, and starting over, all of that. It might be good to have a focus on that, because there may be people who are just interested in that because it's Star Drifter, but also there may be people who are interested in the process and want to see how it comes together. So this is not the first time I've tried to create a Star Drifter role-playing game. I actually started one a few years back creating everything from scratch and I got I don't know, part of the way there. Enough for some early playtesting, I suppose. But I put that aside because I didn't have a gaming group and I, you know, wasn't super motivated, to be honest. I just thought it would be a cool thing to have. So, time goes by and I start getting back into gaming. And we start with mixed signals and all of this and the idea resurfaces. Well, at the same time, I discovered a game called Dungeon Raiders by Brent P. Newhall. And it's sort of a clone of the very first Dungeons & Dragons box set game, the original paper booklets. And that's free for anyone to use and to modify and to change and to do whatever they really, whatever they want to with it very inspiring. I liked the design and I liked some of the basic assumptions that Brent put together for that game. And I thought, you know what, with some modification that wouldn't be a bad jumping off point for a Star Drifter game. Granted, Dungeon Raiders is a fantasy, high fantasy role-playing game and Star Drifter is not, but the basic mechanics of the game, that's really what you need. Everything else is more or less window dressing. So that's what I did. I took a look at his game and decided, yeah, this would be doable. And I started working on it. Over the course of just a couple of days, two days maybe, three, possibly three, I had the beginnings of a Star Drifter role-playing game based on Dungeon Raiders. I refined that and did some playtesting of my own and have gotten it to the second version of the rules. Still, still very, very early days. This is uh, nothing really ready to be shared with the general public, but it's mature enough now that it can be worked on and it can be played and play-tested and 
you know, the, the actual real work can begin, but you have to have a basis. But you have to have something to focus on, so now I do. So as it stands, the Star Drifter role-playing game is a thing. It's real. It's not playable, really. I don't think anyone could run a game in it except for me because I haven't put down anything about the Star Drifter universe. That is something that will come together over time. And I will crib very liberally from the scripts for this show. But the basic rules, basic combat, skill acquisition, levels, and all of that sort of stuff, uh, the basic character classes, these things exist right now. I am at version 0.02DR, DR stands for Dungeon Raiders, and we're proceeding. So in each episode of Voice from the Void, I'll also give you a brief update, like this one, of the process of the game. I have sent out invitations for a select few people to help me play test it. We'll do that over the internet and I'll send them copies of the rules. I sent them an email and said they were attached. Now I'm a, I'm a knucklehead. I didn't I didn't attach them and I'll have to uh, I'll have to send those off to people. But as it stands, I've been testing it out myself. I've written an initial adventure and tested that, tested the combat, tested the skill use. It all seems to work. It's not super complicated. I mean, we're not, you know, we're really not talking rocket science here, but getting it right at this stage really matters. And then everything else is just writing and writing and writing, adding stuff, adding stuff, adding stuff. So that's, uh, that's where we stand. And that is the Star Drifter role-playing game update for this episode. Though it's been stated in previous episodes, as well as in the various tales themselves, it doesn't hurt to reiterate that there are three main categories of space vessels in the Star Drifter universe. Ships, boats, and craft. Starships have jump engines and human crews. Spacecraft are fully automated vessels that do not have star jump engines installed, while jump craft are automated vessels which do. And space boats are vessels that do not have star jump, but which do have human crews. Also, as previously described in Voice from the Void and elsewhere, star jump as a transportation technology suffers from certain shortcomings. Foremost among these is its inability to function at all within or near dense gravity fields. This means that starships can only transition in or out of jump space at the edge of such a field. Usually, the largest gravity well in a star system is the primary, meaning the star itself. Planetary bodies also exert dense fields, though over a much smaller area. The exact distance required to be clear of the space-time distortions of a primary's gravitational influence is different from system to system, of course, mostly depending upon that star's overall mass and density. For some, 
the safe jump point might be out past the furthest planetary orbit. For others, it might be well within the orbits of the star's outer natural satellites, though of course still clear of their localized gravity fields. Either way, there are limits to how deep into a star system a ship can jump, either in or out. Starships are also equipped with reaction drives, with which they can travel around in normal space. Effectively, though, half the vessel's functionality, and the exact functionality that makes it a starship to begin with, is unavailable at this time. A starship that cannot jump is the same as a spaceboat, so why tie up your vessel's faster-than-light capability for days or even weeks driving in or out of a well when you can simply hand off your cargo, passengers, and data to vessels that specialize in travel through normal space? This is the rationale behind freight-hauling spaceboats, and it is directly responsible for their ubiquity and utility in a time period of interstellar travel. While a starship isn't jumping, it isn't doing its primary job. Not every inhabited star system has the infrastructure in place to service starships on the edge of its gravity well, and in these cases the ships must venture deeper using conventional reaction drives. Many systems do have stations or other structures on the edge or rim, though, and the presence of these so-called rim stays are a sign that such a destination is both modern and prosperous. Boats represent vital links in the travel and supply chains of outer space. They are often specialized and designed to handle tasks of various kinds. They can be tugboats. They can serve space construction, emergency service, and inspection duties. With the sole exception of star jump, in fact, every conceivable job for a crewed vessel in space is being filled by boats. Indeed, as time has gone by, they have come to be seen as the normal and overwhelmingly more common vessel type for space travel, with starships taking up the position of specialized tools for a very specific and narrowly defined job. Certainly, there are exceptions and sometimes operational crossovers, but the reality is that, to the majority of people in this future, space boats mean space travel itself. As can be imagined, boats come in all shapes and sizes. Some are hardly larger than one-person scoots, while others range all the way up to gigantic freight box haulers moving millions of metric tons of mass at a time. Lately, the trend in cargo hauling has been for smaller, discrete boxes, each fully capable of independent control in normal space. Many of these are fully automated, placing them more properly into the category of spacecraft, but nearly all can be controlled by an onboard crew or, at the least, a pilot, if so desired. At any given moment, spaceboat traffic moves tirelessly in, out, and across gravity wells in every inhabited star system in space. Even with settlements located between stars, far from any gravity wells, Fleets of maintenance, delivery, and emergency response boats hover around and attend to the structures themselves and to their many visiting starships. Boats deliver food, machine parts, 
passengers, raw materials, information, and various services. From one place to another within gravity wells and tween system settlements, running in from and out to jump points, and everywhere else. All systems with people in them have spaceboats, and any system with a sizable population, say a few billion souls, has many. In such a place, there could be hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of spaceboats cruising hither and thither, performing specialized tasks, or simply plying regular routes doing mundane sorts of jobs. That may seem like a lot, but keep in mind that those kinds of numbers are dwarfed by the amount of seagoing vessels we have afloat today in the here and now throughout the world. In Star Drifter terms, the number of spaceboats to be found in and around a settlement, whether orbital or planetary, is a direct function of population. Space stations, or terraformed worlds with large numbers of people, have lots of business to conduct, and therefore lots of traffic. There are myriad systems and procedures in place for the shifting of goods and passengers. But let's go over a typical process right now so as to understand the scope and importance of these vital space vessels. The Dubin Binary Star System, as featured in the short story Open All Night, is composed of two stars. One, a massive red giant called Dubin Sr., and the other, a white dwarf called Dubin Jr. The smaller star is primarily a scientific draw, with a number of observation platforms and astrophysics laboratories, none bigger than high dock size. The larger star, though, has several true habitations, a total of 12, in fact, including two great and nearly identical space settlements named Sousa and Yumel. These stations house nearly 5 million people each. There is a 13th station of some size called Gesserel out at Dubin Senior's main jump point, a rim stay with a permanent population of a million people or so. It's primarily focused on the servicing of starships, including freight and passenger handling, along with out-system data processing. There are also numerous high docks attending to every large station in the system and a few smaller communities deeper in the well. All told, Dubin Sr. enjoys a collective human population of approximately 2.5 billion people spread across an area of space many times larger than Sol System itself. Okay, so we're in Dubin Sr., a very large starship of a style known as a superliner arrives just outside regular traffic routes near the main jump point. A star this massive has a deep well. Superhaulers were described in some detail in the short story Unit 19, but briefly, this type of ship is actually an amalgamation of smaller, largely non-star jump capable boats and craft. Closer in form to a school of fish than it is to any kind of contiguous starship, component cargo boats peel off from the larger mass of vessels when they arrive at a destination, while loads that are outgoing line up to take their place. Assuming the incoming cargo vessels have crew complements of some sort, many do depending upon their exact designs, the nature of their loads, and the local laws of the star system, 
they are piloted in away from the jump point toward Sousa, Yumel, or whatever other destination they're bound for in the system. If circumstances allow, many such boats unload their contents into open space somewhere along the route, whereupon even smaller cargo handling boats and craft take over from there, acting somewhat analogous to modern-day forklifts and delivery vans. These bring freight to designated cargo docks and airlocks on specific structures, or upon the surface of some inhabited inner planetoid, where it is offloaded and turned over to different businesses and transfer services for eventual processing and local distribution. This sort of thing goes on continuously, each hour of the normal three-shift day of settled space. It happens in Dubin Sr. and everywhere else, incessantly, indefatigably, and without fail. Try to picture the scale of that for a moment, spread across thousands of settled systems. This is the nature of commerce and civilization in the galaxy, which, among other things, rests upon the utility and reliability of spaceboats. Much of what I've just described refers to boats of size, but they can be small, too. It's not unheard of for private citizens to own tiny vessels meant primarily for personal transportation around busy star systems or simply for recreation. So-called kit boats are a popular entry point, since they can be affordable, at least for relatively well-to-do people, fairly easy to assemble, and capable of nearly endless modifications. In the larger, more populous systems, wealthy youths will often gather together outside large colony structures to show off their home-built spaceboats, racing each other, socializing, and sometimes even fighting with installed, though generally prohibited, civilian-class armaments. Most of these practices are illegal, as you might imagine, but it can be hard to catch small, fast boats scattering in all directions whenever the authorities arrive, especially when they display no valid transponder signals, a distressingly common violation. Some law enforcement organizations suspect groups such as these of smuggling and gang-related activities, but proof is difficult to gather. The parallel to ground-based street racing is lost on no one, though, so the groups have collectively been labeled hot-rodders by the media and general public. When asked about what steps are being taken to deal with this social scourge, law enforcement media reps invariably reply that, Investigations are ongoing, whatever that means. In addition to their vast and varied civilian uses, spaceboats are also important vessel types for military forces. Starjump gets a fighting crew to a contended star system with rapidity and allows it to withdraw just as quickly, both of which are invaluable capabilities. Once a starship enters a gravity well, however, those capabilities vanish. Because of this, there has been considerable research into long-range reconnaissance and combat over the years, resulting in the modern military warship, which can camp out at a jump point and credibly attack one or more targets that are millions of kilometers deep into the star system. Such technology is impressive, but local conditions and crew capabilities greatly impact the efficacy of that sort of warfare.
Even in this future time, there is often no substitute for closing the distance. Military forces are generally reluctant to commit their starships to long-term engagements inside deep wealth threat environments, since retreating or just redeployment can be problematic, slow, or even straight-up impossible. Combat spaceboats partly exist to mitigate this issue, coming in every design variant imaginable. Though military forces use the same sorts of cargo, passenger, and service boats found in the civilian arena, fighter boats, specialized materiel and ordnance freighters, large battle boats, and even a number of massive carrier boats can be found in various star systems. These vessels are generally part of larger interstellar fleets, carried to contentious or problematic stellar systems by riding along inside the heightened jump bubbles of tugships. They are deployed for the express purpose of entering enemy gravity wells, neutralizing opposition, and taking possession of both physical assets and strategic vectors. In so doing, they leave long-range orbital bombardment and observational duties, as well as direct control over a system's jump points, to the starships. Understand that close theater combat for spaceboats may be described as any exchange taking place up to a million kilometers in distance, or even more. These vessels possess the same targeting, sensor, and weapon systems as starships. The very presence of such boats sends a direct message to the opposition, specifically that their troubles aren't going away anytime soon. Military boats have the reputation of being tough vessels in a fight, since their very purpose is to patrol and hold the line, as it were. War boats are designed for deep action and self-reliance, so it's perhaps unsurprising that a degree of mystique has arisen around certain dedicated boat services over the years, and therefore around war boats themselves. Even though civilian-class versions designed for general rescue and security patrols, share in this reputation to an extent. When a gun or missile boat is on vector, the bad guys start eyeing the jump point. Or so goes the myth. As a general rule, war boats outpower and outgun starships of equivalent mass and general classification, packing more armor, more weaponry, and more available power into a smaller hull type while yet requiring fewer support vessels in order to adequately perform their duties. There are numerous exceptions, of course, too many to even mention, but a squadron of enemy warboats is certainly a fearsome sight, one that even the proudest and most confident of starship commanders tries to avoid seeing up close. Warboats can be found throughout all of settled space but are most commonly encountered as distinct military sub-branches in the Alliance, the Empire, especially near the borders, and throughout large parts of church space. In these places, the military boat services are greatly respected. War boats are sometimes crewed by local personnel, instilling in them a sense of added patriotism and responsibility. Pretty ship fly away mighty boat will win the day. 
Those are lines from a nursery rhyme chanted by children at play in many settled areas throughout space. Strength and constancy are the two most prominent perceptions that the general public holds about warboats, and as a result, their advocates have much influence within their respective military bodies. In Ainspace, for example, the warboat arm of fleet, known as the Territorial Protection Force, or TPF, reflects fully half of the Alliance military's ongoing operating budget and has no less than two Admirals Gold Class sitting on the command council of Fleet HQ at any one time. And understand, that's a table with only five seats. The highest command office in Fleet is Admiral Platinum Class, a singular rank which has been filled on numerous occasions by senior officers of the TPF. In other words, warboats and their personnel are held in very high esteem within Ain Fleet, and therefore within the nation itself. Though champions of starship military dominance exist, corporate space as a whole may be one of them, it's generally acknowledged that while starships might be able to wrest a star system from an enemy, only warboats can keep one. Any way you look at it, boats in the Star Drifter universe are ubiquitous and varied. They're needed everywhere, all the time, and are valued by pretty much everyone. No nation, modern or otherwise, could function without them and a star system with vast numbers of cargo and transport space boats trucking along regular routes, flitting about like tireless bees and protected by bulldog squadrons of warboats patrolling the lanes, is powerful, both economically and militarily, and greatly respected by all. So that's it for this one. Boats get continually featured in the novels and stories. They're just so darn cool. Next time, we'll be covering a large, somewhat nebulous subject that has had a sweeping effect upon the Star Drifter universe, namely supermaterials. Metals like polinium and kalanite have effectively rewritten the engineering and design playbooks. Organic polymers capable of incredible effects and endless permutations have touched nearly all products and services throughout space. Modern electric cell components and materials have so greatly improved upon the efficiency of energy storage and delivery that power concerns have all but vanished. It's a wonderland of science and chemistry, perhaps, but there are more than a few downsides to some of these amazing materials, problems about which their manufacturers and proponents would rather you didn't know. You and I aren't afraid of those people, so join me as we learn about the way things are made in the future, what they're made of, and perhaps how they can be made better, next time on Voice from the Void. You have been listening to Voice from the Void, written and read by David Collins Rivera. This podcast is a presentation of Cavalcade Audio Productions and Mixed Signals Media. 
The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through No Copyright Sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. This podcast discusses fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2019 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care. Yeah.